What would you guess if I asked you what percentage of all textiles gets recycled and fed back into making new clothes today? Well, if you guess 1%, you are right. I think that is a shockingly low number. Today, we showcase a company working on solving this problem. My guest today is Eric Kopp. Eric is the CEO of Warnegan Technologies. Based in Nottingham in the UK, Warnegan Technologies has developed a technology that recaptures raw materials from non-reusable products, such as textiles and polyester bottles and packaging, to produce dual PET and cellulose outputs, which can then be put back into production supply chains. We dive into this today. We'll also talk about the size of the textile recycling problem, or rather lack thereof, and the different stakeholders in this little-known but important value chain. Warnegan recently raised about $30 million in new funding to scale from R&D to operations and build their first demo plant in Switzerland. If you ask why Switzerland, well, listen to find out. A founder and entrepreneur with a unique ability to blend technology and industrial insights into successful commercial ventures, Eric brings a mix of academic and real-world experience with a track record of leading teams through research phases to high-volume manufacturing, a challenge faced by many climate tech companies today. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Eric Kopp. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Nathan Pomart and this is Loose, the Climate Tech Podcast. Every week we interview a founder and explore the stories, ideas, innovations and businesses behind some of the most inspiring climate tech companies that have a tangible positive impact on our planet. This show is designed to help you learn, instigate optimism and inspire further action towards addressing the climate change challenge that we face as a global community. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or investor interested in learning more about the climate tech space and how you can play a part in it, this show is for you. So Eric, welcome to the show. We have not talked about the massive issue that recycling is on this show so far, so I'm very glad that we can dive into it today and into the, the technologies that are getting built by people like you to to solve that issue. So again, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I'd love to start with hearing your story. We were chatting before that you are not the founder of Warn Again, but you are the, the CEO. So tell us a bit about how the two paths converged. Yeah, sure. So talk a little bit about Warn Again and then, then how I fit into it. So Warn Again actually goes all the way back to 2005. But realistically, uh, in our current iteration, started in about 2019 when there was a shift towards uh, chemical recycling of textiles. So uh, the, the the bulk problem that we're looking to address is textile waste and how do we how do we go about recycling that? But as you correctly pointed out, you know I'm not the original founder of Warn Again. I would say that uh, you know my background is science and technology, but realistically, what I do is is early stage companies. So Warn Again is actually my fourth startup in true. Uh, startup fashion. The first one went bankrupt. The second one went public through an SPAC. And then the third, I, I licensed to an automotive OEM. So Warn Again, I'm convinced this is going to be the, the third success. It's unique in its own right. But uh, realistically, 
I like to believe that I have a pretty good idea of what what works and what doesn't work in in early stage companies. So Warn Again was a good fit for me. It fits right in with the the sort of mantra of if you'll forgive the grammar, doing good while doing good. We're trying to make the world a better place, trying to do something good for the environment, but do it with a with a sustainable business model as well. So before we dive into the um, the technologies and what you're innovating there, I'd love to take a step back and set out the problem. Maybe hearing from your your own take on it, I think it's it's commonly accepted in the in the climate tech community and and beyond that. Um, recycling of of non reusable materials is not where it should be. So how do you how do you kind of size the problem in your head? Sure. And what do you see as the main reasons that it's not being solved yet today? Uh, good question. So realistically, what the problem that we're trying to solve and and that we're focused on is textile waste. So from a from a broad perspective, we as humans generated about 70 million tons of polyester fiber just last year, right? And that number is growing rapidly. So while physical waste doesn't often get the emphasis and the publicity that, for example, greenhouse gases do, they tend to be interrelated, right? Because most of that textile waste ends up in one of two places, either a landfill Uh, or an incinerator, which is effectively creating your, your greenhouse gases. So they are related problems, but we it's a slightly different challenge. You know, so to put it in perspective, we talked about the 70 million tons of polyester. Roughly speaking, you're talking about 115 to 120 million tons of textile generated each year. Less than 1% of that is recycled into raw materials again. So some of it gets resold and then downcycled. Uh, some of it gets cut into to different fiber, different wipers, things of that nature. But the reality is that all of that material, nearly all of that material is ending up in a landfill or, or an incinerator uh, at some point. And how do you think about the, um, the, the key reasons why most of it ends up in either a landfill or in an incinerator? Well, because there's no way, no way to handle it right now. Textile recycling uh, from a chemical perspective is, is very limited. Uh, there is mechanical recycling of certain fibers, but then, of course, you have to segregate it based on uh, type, uh, based on color, for example. So it gets uh, limited uses for that. And then the other big part of it is that the, the, the mountain of textile waste is growing, right? And, and that has a lot to do with the, the business models of the, uh, the fashion brands that are out there. Um, so a big part of this is the, the sort of fast fashion Uh, business model that's been set up uh, that's worked very effectively for for the H and M's and the Zara's of the world, but but that's based on you know rapid turnover, right? And and relatively low cost manufacturing and and putting items out on the market for a short period of time, but then that equates to even more waste than what we've been what we've been used to. So realistically, we need to find a way to recycle that. Uh, and, and basically turn it back into raw materials rather than just continually downcycling, because that's the only way we're going to create a fully circular system. And so let's let's take the the best case scenario of uh, let's say a well intentioned uh, citizen who decides to put their used clothes in the specific clothes bin at their wherever is the closest to them. W what happens today? after it gets to that bin 
Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So basically what happens is it goes to different places depending on where you are. So here in the UK, um, it's typically the uh, Salvation Army that picks it up. That, that's a charity. If you're in Switzerland, it's probably TexAid. Uh, if you're in the Netherlands, it's probably Borg Group. It depends on where you are. But there are specific collectors that collect all of the, the incoming textile, right? And the first thing that happens is that all these trucks and all these bags come in and you have individuals picking out items. Now, what they're doing is throwing out the things that are obviously trash, but then they're also looking for what they call the cream, which is the top 1% that funds the sorting business model, right? So these are this is the, the random Gucci handbag that's been thrown in and can be resold here in Europe. Um, the After that, most of it goes and gets sorted again for resale. Uh, approximately, they say approximately 45% gets sold for resale, but that's not here in Europe. That's predominantly in Africa. And mm -hmm. the question is, does that actually become resale or is it actually just landfill there as opposed to being landfill right, here? Right, right. And then the bottom 45% just goes straight to uh, incineration or, or landfill here in Europe. Got it. So that's kind of the way that it breaks down right now. But it's is the whole yeah. system, the sorting mechanism and the sorting business model is built on sorting for resale. And one of the challenges that we face is adapting that model to obviously still sort for resale, but in addition, sort by material type and sort for chemical recycling. Mm. Well. Got it. And so where do you come in? Kind of who do, who do you in that value chain... Who do you interface with to convince them to adopt your solution? Is it incinerator or landfill operators where you would sort of help them get more value out of their inputs by, by doing something with, the, with those materials? Well, ideally, we're replacing them. So the okay. people that we interact with directly on, the, on our upstream side are the sorters. So the people, the, the collectors, the, the Salvation Armies of the world that are collecting the textile. And as you properly mentioned, you know, the, the textile that's actually collected today is only the, the part that is that the, 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 the responsible consumer ends up putting in the correct bin, right? A, a good chunk of it is still going into landfill directly because it gets thrown in the, in the trash instead. But um, so we, we interact with them uh, and we're working with them to try to develop that model and how that works for them. But the reality is that there is a substantial amount of CapEx that's going to be required to enable that system. So even when there's a downstream output for these sorters, right, for specifically cut uh, materials, they still need to be able to make the investment to do it. And um, one of the challenges that we face is that a lot of the sorters today are either charities or, or, or family offices, right? And, and we're talking about right. a, a potentially a massive expansion of, of what this is, right? So we talk about today, less than 1% of textile is recycled into new textile. And so if you mm -hmm, can get even mm -hmm. to 50%, you're talking about a 50x increase, which is just massive. The question becomes, you know, do the existing players have the balance sheet to actually be able to facilitate that change? Or are you going to see some sort of uh, government support? So the EU, for example, has been very proactive in that area. And actually, the British government has come out through Innovate UK just recently to support it as well, specifically focused on sorting and sorting by material for chemical recycling. Let's talk a bit about then the technology that, that you have been developing 
So what does it enable the sawtars to do, or put it another way, what does it enable to do with a, with a piece of textile that was not previously possible? Yeah, um, so, so basically what happens now is that the sorters are effectively paying to offload it. Right. It's it, to send something to incinerator is generally speaking about $150 a ton that you pay to get rid of it. And so potentially what we're doing for them is providing a different outlet to say, hey, we're willing to take that material. We're willing to take it in as as used textile. Um, we have to do some additional what we call benefication. Uh, we have to strip off all the zippers, the buttons, etc. Everything on there. We have to shred it down to the point where it can go into the front of our system. But essentially, we're we hope to be a sink for that used textile so that instead of going to the incinerator, instead of it going to the landfill, it comes to us instead. And what we're doing is we're taking it, we're recycling it, turning it back into raw materials and hopefully displacing the polyester and the wood pulp that's coming from you know petroleum and or forests out there. And then you would sell that back to textile manufacturers? Exactly. So that goes right back into the supply chain. So what we have focused on was creating our, our end products of, of our process are one-to-one drop-in replacements. So we create a, a polyester chip, um, a PET chip, which is basically a direct replacement for polyester made from petroleum. And we create a, a cellulose precipitate, which is a replacement for, for dissolving wood pulp, which is used for uh, man-made fibers, for textile, but also in the obviously in the paper industry as well. In other, let's say, areas, I mean, Bill Gates amongst others, talk about this concept of the green premium, which is like how much more expensive to do the, the green thing today compared to the non-green thing. Yep. So is that also how you think about your technology compared to the alternative, which is let's just get fresh polyester and kind of where, where are you today? Yeah, you, you have to, right? It, it's always going to be easier to take a natural resource. It's always going to be cheaper to pull it out of the ground. You know, anytime you're doing recycling, there are necessarily more steps involved. The, the good news is that the demand is not coming from, from us, right? The demand is, is coming from end consumers. You see, you see governments reacting to it, but realistically, it's the consumers today that are demanding more sustainable alternatives, right? And that's getting pushed down. So you're probably aware that there have been, uh, throughout the fashion industry, very big public commitments to source their materials sustainably. The dirty little secret is that not many of them know how they're going to do that. So they've made these yeah. grand promises to their end consumers saying, hey, we're going to source our materials sustainably. But oh, by the way, we're taking you know, 300,000 tons of polyester a year and we don't know where it's going to come from. So that's where we come into play and we say, look, our objective is to allow you to, you know, to allow the Zaras, the H&Ms of the world to run their business the way they know best but just to do it in a more sustainable manner, right? We, we, yeah. we don't believe that you have to compromise on quality to, to be sustainable. That's a, that's a false choice. Where you are today in terms of the development of, of Warn Again, where do you see the biggest things that you need to unlock to get to the next level? Is that more on the technology side where you need to crack a handful of additional things before you get to an acceptable cost level or... Is that more on the go-to-market distribution side? Where do you concentrate your efforts at the moment? So we've got a couple of different uh, milestones that we're, we're looking at. Warn Again is in a 
transition point from being what I would call sort of a, a more traditional early stage, I don't want to say fly by night, but you know, a research focused uh, startup into one that's really moving into commercialization, right? And, and mm-hmm. technology transfer from R&D into production and into operations is not a simple step. And it's something that often gets overlooked, which is part of the reason why I'm here is that, you know, I, I have a background in doing this. And I like to believe that I sort of straddle the line between R&D and operations because it is a challenge and it is something that is not necessarily straightforward. So for us, the big challenge is one uh, is building our upcoming demonstration plant, which we're doing right now. Um, so anytime you move from R&D and in a brand new process into actual production, uh, you know, you're going to have a plant that you're going to turn on. And despite all of the the research that you do and all of the engineering that you do, because it's brand new, because there has never been a process like this or, or a manufacturing plant like this ever built before, something is not going to be right, right? And you're yeah. going to have to rapidly go and fix that problem. And so building concurrently a team that can react quickly to upcoming problems and solve them in a, let's call it elegant fashion, is an absolute necessity. Where is the plant going to be located? So the plant we're building is is in Vintetour, Switzerland. Uh, so that's just uh, a little ways outside of Zurich. And w- what was the logic for for setting up the plant there? You know, I get this question a lot because people look at it and they say, well, that's not <laughs> exactly the, the, the lowest cost uh, area for manufacturing. Sure. And I agree, it, it is the certainly the nicest place that I've ever built a production plant. But <laughs> it, 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 it's... There are several reasons for it. One, uh, and I think the the overriding reason that we will probably loop back to in a bit is sort of this circular supply chain and how it looks a little bit different than the traditional linear supply chain. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to collect textile and then ship it, you know, long distances to convert it back into raw materials, to ship it to another distance, to ship to make it into a garment, to ship it all the way back to Europe again. And particularly when you start thinking about first mile, last mile problems, right? We actually anticipate that, you know, our feedstock, you know, when you talk about end of life textile is coming from population centers. So it's not yes. something that's easily transported around the world. So when you say, okay, actually the best model for this is a locally sourced ecosystem. So Switzerland actually provided a great location for us in the sense of we have a community, which we call the the Swiss textile ecosystem of like-minded companies that are interested and motivated to do this, right? And and it's always one thing, you know, as a startup, you you get used to it in, in people that say, oh, we love the idea. We love to be involved right up until the point where it's time to write a check. But we have companies that are partners with us in the Swiss textile ecosystem that are making investments on their own to make this a reality. So that's one reason is that we have that group, that community there. That includes companies that will buy your right. uh, your output to turn it into new textile. So it includes both upstream and downstream partners, right? So on, on the upstream side, we have the, we have the sorters, the collectors. On the downstream side, you have the people that spin... Uh, spin the polyester and spin the cellulose into fiber, and then the weavers uh, that create that into an actual textile, and then it goes back to the to the fashion brands who, in, in the end, create a garment out of it. So we're able to not only create but also trace a circular supply chain. Does it mean that you know? I guess my my assumption, hearing you describe the the setup, is that 
ultimately you are going to produce fairly high cost textile that will go into fairly high end fashion items is that is that a fair assumption or not necessarily not necessarily as you would i think any economist would tell you that the 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 output price is whatever somebody's willing to pay for it and in the end right now what we're seeing is a premium for recycled products right and recycled products not for obviously what what end properties they're giving you but for where they came from right and and that again has to do with the demand that the brands are seeing is they're they're seeing demand for Uh, sustainable products, and they're able to sell it at, at a much larger premium. The second part of it is that material costs, when you when you think about a garment, is not really that significant. You know, a large right. portion of it is on the back end. An increase in price uh, from the raw materials is is actually relatively insignificant to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are seeing a premium, right? And right now, recycled PET chip goes for a premium of about 50% over standard polyester over non-recycled or, or virgin polyester. We believe that's going to be sustainable. The reality is that because of the, the the commitments that have been made and because of the lack of options, this market is going to be short material for quite a while. So we anticipate that that, that premium is going to be here. I mean, it, it's always possible that, that the end consumer changes their mind and suddenly tomorrow, nobody cares about uh, sustainability anymore, but I don't think that's very likely. Yeah. I think this is something that's here to stay. I think it's something that we all need to do. We recognize that we need to do. And people are willing to take some personal responsibility and say, hey, look, I'm going to buy something uh, that's more sustainable because I believe that it's important. On the downstream side, so on the on the textile manufacturer side, I guess that would be the right way to call it, the, the H&M, Zara of the, of, the, of the world. Do you observe differences between the very big companies that have made you know public commitments but as you said don't necessarily know how to how to achieve them compared to possibly smaller more nimble fashion brands that maybe are willing to try more new things when it comes to using the, the circular value chain or would you say that it's across the board uh, an, an effort that is observed across the board in the industry Well, there are always exceptions, but I, I, I think it's mostly an across-the-board thing. The, the challenge, of course, uh, is how you do it. So the, the solution for, for a Zara or an H&M is going to be different than it is for a boutique supplier, right? Because of the volumes that we're talking about. And realistically, you know, our goal is not to help facilitate a sustainable shoe brand or a, a sustainable t-shirt manufacturer. It's to help eliminate the problem of textile waste, which means that we need to address the large consumers as well as the small consumers. So from a volume point of view, it's the big, you know, the big people that are they're taking hundreds of thousands of tons a year that we need to be able to address and say, hey, look, this is where we solve the bulk of the problem. So I, I do think it's a it's something that we see across the board. But for us, you know, realistically, if you talk about solving the big problem of or, or helping to solve the big problem of textile waste, uh, you have to address the big consumers, the large volume consumers. One question on the on the uh, ecosystem, the Swiss Swiss ecosystem that you mentioned, is there an actual name for the collective or for the for the cluster that people can Google and, and learn more about? Uh, yeah, it's the Swiss textile recycling ecosystem. Okay, okay. I wanted to switch to the, um, the understanding of your of your team, but what are the key skills that you need within your team, both for the research and for the operations that you mentioned earlier that are required to, to be successful in, in this venture? Yeah, and, and this is, this is, I think, a, 
a very interesting question, right? And, and it has a lot to do with how you scale a business because early on and, and talking about startups, you know, early stage companies, you need a very particular, I would say character more than skill set. And so when I'm looking for people to join my team, I'm looking for their approach to solving problems. Startups by definition, uh, almost were, were small teams. And so you end up solving problems that you're not qualified to solve because there's nobody else. Right. And so you have to go about it and say, I'm looking for people that look at problems as challenges and opportunities rather than hurdles to get over. Right. You're looking at for people that are going to seek out ways to find answers. Right. And and I to so that's why I say the character is is sometimes more important than the skill set. As the company grows, you now have the opportunity to specialize a little bit more. Right. And also the requirements change. The problems that you're trying to solve are no longer R&D problems, they're actually operational problems. And the way that you approach it is, is different as well. So uh, one of the big problems that, that the companies get into is you have to change your metrics. For example, our operations is a very structured path. And so you need people that are organized and are used to that sort of top down structure of how, this is how we do things process-oriented, developing a method that works reliable, reliably every single time versus R&D where, for example, you're, you're just trying to find a result. You're trying to find something that works, Yeah. right? And, and so those are two very, very different problems, right? And the way that you solve it and the people, the, the personal characteristics that you need to solve that tend to be a little bit different, but also the way that you handle the problem. So you, you can't Gantt chart R&D, right? R&D is not linear. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 the problem, you know, I, 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 back when I was a, an R&D manager, my boss would come and say, hey, when, when, when are we going to have an answer to this problem? And I, I would say, well, it could either be next week or it could be six months. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know. That's the sort of the nature of R&D. It happens to be that way. But operations is not like that. It can be very organized and, and more structurally, rigorously controlled and structured process. Yeah, exactly. Production. Transitioning from this R&D stage to the operation stage is something that I observe time and time again with the companies that I talk to on this on this podcast. That's where many climate tech companies are at, at the moment. Um, it's often a critical moment where you want to get it right and somewhat quickly because that's that's when the funding can be more challenging to get. And that is something that you've done multiple times with, as you mentioned earlier, some successes and some failures or, you know, some less less successful mm -hmm. outcomes, potentially nothing to do with the transition from R&D to operations, by the way. But I, I, I wanted to ask you, what are the learnings that you took away from those various attempts that could be potentially helpful for other, other climate tech teams out there? Yeah. So I, I would say the first, the first part is you, you can't underestimate the scale of the problem, right? And, and I think most, most of us understand that, that you have the known problems that you have to solve, but it's those unknown unknowns that can really trip you up, right? And then there's the, the technology transfer, right? And, and the communication of an idea mm -hmm. from a scientist to an engineer can get lost in translation quite a bit. And so how do you manage that communication? How do you facilitate that in a practical way? So those are the, the sort of key, I think, management problems and, and organizational challenges that you face. Uh, and so again, what, I'm, what I tend to look for 
are flexible people that have an, have the right character and the willingness to solve problems in a new way and, and the willingness to fail. You're going to make mistakes. Uh, this is sort of the, the principle of, of fail fast, right? Is, is you want to make your mistakes early on in the process when the costs are the lowest, right? Um, and so you need to have people that are willing to do that, but then also can communicate that effectively to the, to the downstream, right? Because the operator who's going to be, be the one you know, operating that equipment and, and making tens of thousands of tons a day is somebody that maybe isn't going to understand the, the heart of the process the way that, that, that somebody else would, but they need to understand which parts of the process are important to what they're doing as well. So I think that's a, that's a key part. And then, you know, from, from, from a high level, from a, from a leadership level, and from, from, from my point of view, I'd say that you have to believe it, really fundamentally believe it. I joke that my role is part direct contributor, part leader, and, and part evangelist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and if, if I don't fundamentally believe what we're doing, nobody's going to. And that's what I told my team, you know, when I arrived was that, you know, if I didn't fundamentally believe it, I wouldn't be here. But by the same token, if everything was going as well as it should, uh, I wouldn't be here either. So yeah. uh, it's it's a little bit of both sides of the coin. This mentality of fail fast is is um, obviously very popular in in software circles where you can you can debug and iterate so so quickly. What is the kind of hardware translation of that? What, for example, when you think of how quickly can we have a, an iteration? of our of our process and then debug it you know to to keep using software mm-hmm. language in your head you think well each cycle is a week a month three months kind of how how do you think about that well it depends on the process so it's never going to be as fast as software but the principle is the same right so you want to generate more iterations and so you think about from your the perspective of your R&D team how do you iterate faster and it is because the process is slower because you can't do you know a single iteration in a day mm-hmm. you have to put more resources into thinking about okay how do we increase that how do we uh, more rapidly cycle through and then you have to be able to prioritize the challenges right and and make educated guesses about which direction you're going to go so The, the benefit is because you're not able to iterate quite so fast, you do have, let's say, a little bit more time to think about the way that you iterate and be a little bit more guided in the way that you handle it. But it is it is a process and you still want to you still want to be able to do that. I mean, you still want to be able to iterate and, and go through it because you are going to make mistakes because the first time it's not going to work and you have to be able to adapt to that. You recently raised a latest round of, of funding of approximately $30 million, if, if I got my numbers right. How did you communicate precisely this story to investors? The story being, you know, we are yeah. successful in the lab. Uh, now it's about, I guess, transitioning that to operations and scaling it. And is there any learning to share with, with other executives of climate tech companies with, you know, either how to tell your story or how to filter for investors who kind of get this phase of the journey, which in a way is very unique and maybe not everybody gets it? Uh, I would say transparency. Um, So uh, as you mentioned, you know, I've been through a number of startups. I've raised money from a variety of different sources. Investors are smart people. Just because you don't match with a particular investor doesn't necessarily mean there's something fundamentally wrong with what you're doing. It may just not match with any of the number of different uh, priorities that they have. So my approach from the very beginning was 
always a high a high level of transparency and and I build models based on our core fundamentals. So, you know, I'm an engineer. I'm I'm a grounded guy. I don't believe in fairy tales about unicorns. Yes. I believe in evidence, right? I believe in what our team is able to do today to make for a better tomorrow. So when I build something, I build it off of, you know, the, the core basis of here's what we have to do, right? Here's how long it's going to take to do those projects. Here's the manpower we're going to need. And then build up the financial model from there. And then I basically hand that model over to the investors and I say, you go through it, yeah, right? You do your thing and rip it apart as best you can because I know uh, what the commercial results are, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Th- this opportunity and what we're doing and the reason, one of the reasons I got involved is that the commercial opportunity is so large. It's one of those things that when you first look at it, you say something like, oh, that can't be right. You must have made some uh, overwhelmingly optimistic assumptions. And so then when the investors really dig into it and they can't find those, Mm -hmm. then there's really no reason not to invest. Yeah. Yeah. And you help them also understand the the risk parameters, I guess, the the things that can go better or worse across um, the handful of key dimensions to help them size the risk. That's right. Anybody who's doing venture capital understands that it's a, that it's a risky scenario, right? And it, it always is. Yeah. Um, if it wasn't, there would be you know a lot of big companies already doing it. Yes. So it, there, that that technical risk is inherent in there, and so you need to be upfront and honest about it about how you're going to solve it. But then also sometimes it's helpful to detail your history. We are still here, you know, since uh, you know 2005 or 2019, depending on your your time frame, um, because of our ability to solve problems that people didn't think were solvable. Yes, yeah. Um, so being able to show a bit of a track record of, look, we've run into this before where we didn't have any understanding of how we were going to solve it, and yet we were able to come up with a solution. Um, and so that gives investors confidence in what you're doing as well. Eric, thank you so much. It's been very, very interesting. Uh, and we, we we went a bit beyond the kind of usual time for this. So that's a testament to, to how much there was to cover. Um, we'll follow your journey and uh, and keep an eye on the on the Swiss um, recycling textile recycling ecosystem to see how the experiment is going. And um, would love to have you back on the show to share your learnings in six months, a year, or whenever you see it being the right time. Wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. I, it was a pleasure to be here, and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, the other episodes as well. Thanks, Eric. Bye bye. You can find out more about Warn Again on their website, warnagain.co.uk. If you are inspired by their mission, check out their career page for their job openings. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on your favorite podcast app and stay tuned for more insightful conversations with other inspiring climate tech founders.